This episode is sponsored by the Real Estate Foundation of BC. REFBC is a philanthropic organization that supports sustainable, equitable, and socially just relationships with land and water. Learn more about the foundation's grants and initiatives at refbc.com. Yedek, Shwanwan, Shnukwa, Injaj, Shashneya, Ash, Darwin Hanna, and Shwash, Slu Nakai Ken, um, Ken. Um, good morning, Aaron, my friend. My name is uh, Cheshneya. That's my Inslikamakchin name. My en- English name is Darwin Hanna. I'm from uh, Nikaya, which is on the west side of Lytton, and I'm a member of the Inslikamak Nation. Can you tell us uh, what that means, uh, what it means to be from your community, uh, your experiences growing up? Uh, yes, so... Um, being a member of the uh, Inslikamak, um, you know, we're proud people. Um, our people, um, you know, have a large family, and um, um, it's a very seasonal way of life for for um, family and, and community and our nation. You know, fishery is one of the you know mainstays, uh, but there's also a lot of um, um, daily use of. Um, you know the, the plants and different herbs and so on, and, and there's a lot of gatherings and um, a lot of things, a lot of learning, and uh, things are very active in the community. And, and um, uh, but you know, it's always a you know lifelong learning. Um, so um, for for me, like learning about our language, it's a you know ongoing um, um, initiative, and you know, learning about the culture is always you know ongoing. So um, so although I'm you know getting on in age, it's still um, you know, um, ongoing learning, and so um, yes, it's just. Um, Did you grow up on reserve? No, I didn't uh, grow up um, in the community. Um, so um, the uh, place where my family's from is called a Nikaya. So every place has a different name in our territory, and so when my you know grandparents talked about um, the different places. They actually never refer to like a reserve. It's always like a place name. So we, so in our nation, we have um, many place names that are uh, um, in Tlickamak. And so um, I grew up in um, Maple Ridge, which is in the suburbs. And um, so I, um, my grandparents moved down to Langley after they retired. And um, so I spent a lot of time with my grandparents um, over the, you know, um, when they were alive. And I learned a lot about the community and I, um, had the opportunity to, um, or, you know, over the years, you, you know, attend a lot of funerals and weddings and different community events. And then, um, during, um, my undergrad, I had the opportunity to, um, do a, um, um, co-op program with my travel council, um, as in, in my undergrad and also, um, did some other work in the community. And, um, probably half my work right now is in the community. Um, so I do a lot of travel back and forth and, um, yeah, so just um, one of those things, you know, you, um, 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 so, so although I, I live in Vancouver right now um, with my wife, um, so we, um, we're always, you know, traveling lots for, for work and for, for family and different, different different events. You wrote a book about your community, if I'm not mistaken. Can you tell us about that? Yes, the book is called um, Our Tellings, and um that was published back in the year uh, 1995 by UBC Press. And um, so um, this is a project I worked on um, it, during my undergrad and um, when I was also living in the community. And um, 
So it's a collection of stories. I worked with an elder. Um, her name is um, Mimi Henry, and she um, was a language specialist. And so we um, interviewed different elders in the language and had the stories uh, translated. Some of the stories were in English. And so the um, book was um, based upon um, certain creation stories of Shinkiap, Coyote, um, and uh, other um, animals during the pre-creation time period, which is known as uh, um, time before humans. Um, but the um, with these creation stories of Coyote, it's about um, his um, um, doings and different um, you know bad deeds and so on, and about how our um, uh, our nation was created. And then it, um, we also have different uh, historic stories of the first encounter of uh, Simon Fraser, um, stories about the um, setting side of, of the reserves and um, the conflict of the gold rush of um, the meeting between um, um, our um, head chief, Shishpentlim, and uh, James Douglas and the, the conflict back at that time and more of um, th- um, things that happened more historically and also including, you know, um, you know the, the impacts of the residential school in Lytton called uh, her name St. George's, and um, really about our way of life. Um, and um, so the book um, um, was provided to uh, um, you know the band schools, and um, it was just um, republished. I know that the book is still utilized by the uh, Stein Valley uh, Anthemic, um School in Lytton. And um, it took us around four years to have it republished by UBC Press. And so um, um, we will be providing more books to the band schools uh, shortly. What was that like? Was it was it meaningful to be able to start to understand uh, the roots of your community, what they kind of endured? Was it challenging to hear about probably individuals like Joseph Trutch, um, bad actors in history? What was the experience to kind of gather that information and develop a deep understanding of it? Right, I think it's uh, learning about the you know, impacts of colonization because we were, um, we, we are, you know, one nation, one territory, and through um, different colonial acts, um, from the, the uh, um, first um, um, encounters of uh, non-native people today, we still have ongoing colonization, and that you know we have a, a deep connection to our land, our territory, and um, yet to this day. The crown so does so does not recognize our um, Irishman title does not recognize our rights fully, and um, so just looking at um, how the Indian Act has has um, caused uh, conflict for for our nation, and so we have to you know move away from the Indian Act um, eventually. It just takes time. Um, we're still going through a healing process because uh, St. George's was a very uh, nasty uh, residential school um, on the way up. I was just reflecting upon going into the um, old barn um, that was utilized for the school. And in, in the um, attic, um, there's a um, writing on the wall from, from my uncle and said, um, the school is just like jail. Um, so he had written that while uh, as a student at the school. And so... Um, and studying, um, you know, criminology in my undergrad and having, um, the, um, occasion to visit different, um, uh, jails and, and institutions. The residential school is no different than a jail for, for many of, um, our community members who had to attend. And so, um, 
So it's just, you know, dealing with that, that legacy. And um, really, it's about, you know, power and control, whereby the um, crown has a lot of power, a lot of control. And um, I was looking at, you know, like Trans Mountain when it was built in the 1950s through our traditional territory. Um, that was built without our um, input, without our consent, of, and without our benefit. And now they're, um, you know, um, um, doubling the pipeline. And um, so although there are some agreements, the Crown has not um, addressed the um, um, issue of, of the impact of that um, historic pipeline through our territory. And so when that pipeline was built in the um, 1950s, we had uh, Indian agents in our community our um, uh, members were forced to attend a residential school against their will. Um, and I know that for my uh, grandmother, um, she lived in a uh, remote area and actually had the RCMP attend uh, my great-grandfather's house to make sure that she attended school. And so you have the um, use of, of the police to ensure that um, um, our members attended school and so, um, so we're dealing with all this colonial legacy. So that's one of the things about learning is that you, you, you learn through, um, you know, family, family history and through community history about the ongoing impacts of, uh, colonization. How do you think about it? Do you think of indigenous communities as incredibly resilient, as strong, as capable of overcoming great adversity? Does this frustrate you? Um, with National Truth and Reconciliation Day coming up, how how do you think we we best think about that day? Yeah, I think with um, you know for families and you know communities and nations, you know we, we are um, survivors. You know we are resilient in that um, we continue on and we press forward. To, we're going to have a you know better tomorrow for our children and for the next generation. And so we we um try to address these um uh, historic wrongs that they're still there to this day and and so um when I look at um you know our um, elders our great grandparents they fought to have these issues resolved and they're still fighting to to this day to advocate for the recognition of our title mm-hmm. advocate for the recognition of our of our rights to deal with um the ability for our people to um you know control education to um, be involved and the management of the land to 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 be involved in all governance, and so we're talking to um, Orange, Orange Shirt Day is that um, it's about um, reflect upon the the history, honoring um, our way of life, honoring our elders, honoring our people, and um, also um, planning for a better tomorrow. So it's about sharing our way of life, sharing our knowledge, but at the same time advocating for a, a better tomorrow through um, you know, inclusion and, and having you know, better arrangements with, with the Crown. So uh, at the last event, at the last National Truth and Reconciliation Day, Justin Trudeau went to Tofino. Uh, he, uh, I think he was surfing, spending time with his family. Should we take something from that? Are we strawmanning him based on one day? How do we think about what he was doing that day? How do we think about what Canadians should be doing on that day? Right. I think it's, um, you know, every Canadian has a um, um, role to, you know, listen, to, to learn, and to participate in any community event. And so, um you know, I know that with any leader, they're always busy and sometimes need 
time for, for um, rest. But nonetheless, um, Orange Shirt Day is an important day for, you know, Canada. And it is, you know, a, a day to reflect upon the past, um, to um, learn from the past, to, to build a better tomorrow. And um, so it's really, um, it's not um, a, a day to really, you know, take the day off and relax. It's about to have, you know, active learning and active understanding to um, to you know, plan for um, you know a better inclusive tomorrow. Right. I wonder if he would say something like, "Well, we're we're doing work on the other 364 days a year. We're making a lot of progress. Uh, we're trying to sign agreements with communities." Is that true? I just imagine him saying something along those lines in response. Right. Um, so his government has made um, good progress on many of the different um, files, but still there's uh, more progress to be made. Um, so every day is a you know day to address the outstanding issues, and there are many many outstanding issues. Um, and so um, it's um, you know for me it's um, I'm not involved politically, but um, you know every, every every person has a role to you know. Um, Take steps to advance the outstanding issues to to achieve um, reconciliation, and so because um, he's the national leader, um, um, you know, it provides a mixed message if he's taking a, a day off and not um, honoring and reflecting upon the past and and trying to provide a positive message to provide for a better tomorrow. Yeah, I I like that analysis. When did you become interested in law? You did criminology as your undergrad, and then you go on to law. We have similar educational backgrounds. And I found for me, the development of my criminology degree really taught me how to disagree with people in a healthy way, how to have tough conversations about human trafficking, uh, the incarceration rates of indigenous people, tough kind of issues that, that maybe we want to not think about. Maybe we want to think about what we're doing that weekend. So having these issues, challenges brought to the forefront uh, meant a lot to me. And then to go on to law school, uh, to see the world through a new lens. What was that sort of journey like for you? When did you decide law school was, was something you wanted to do? Right. I think that um, the choice to go to law school was sort of um – Happened over a course of years, and that um, you know, growing up was always a bit of the you know the underdog, um, and then um, you know just trying to have you know fairness, always trying to achieve fairness, and always trying to advocate for um, you know a better um, tomorrow. And so, and learning about you know um, my grandparents, and learning from from about our you know, title and about how that was not addressed, and um, learning about. Um, about impacts of development on our lands. Um, my um, uncle had um, um, was involved in a court case for um, the uh, Kitsum Kalem band. I have a lot of relatives up there. And so he was working on this court case when I was a teenager, learning about that, how they were successful in obtaining an injunction against the spray of um, herbicides on on the force, and also um, taking Canada to court regarding um, the um, um, below fair market value of um, gravel extraction from their community. So, so I learned from my uncle regarding how the courts can be used use as a tool to advance um, our community interests. Mm-hmm. Um, in um, high school, I took um, a class called uh, Law 12. And um, in my, um, I didn't 
do too well in high school because of you know, I worked quite a bit. I uh, wasn't fully focused. Uh, but going into uh, um, college, I attended uh, Douglas College um, for uh, two years, and um, I did quite well, and then went on to SFU for my criminology. And so uh, criminology was a good stepping stone into law, and I knew that um, if, I got, if I got good grades, I can get into law school. And I applied, got in my my. Um, and they used to have um, different, you know, bulletins back then. Um, so my uh, cousin Stephen Point was the um, former director of the um, First Nations um, um, Law Program at UBC, and so, um, um, so yeah, I applied, got in, and um, yeah. So, so, and I think it's um, from also working um, um, my trial counsel um, um, as part of my undergrad. I learned a lot about. The um, pursuit of um, Aboriginal rights. When I said pursuit regarding having trying to have Aboriginal rights until recognized, and so tent, you know, on different you know um, political meetings back then, um, and um, just to you know be able to observe and witness of the leaders, um, you know, debating how to move forward with rights and title, and also that time period. Um, you had the uh, Sparrow decision regarding uh, fisheries, um, regarding the recognition of our people's right to fish for food, social and ceremonial purposes back in, I believe, 1990. And um, so that was quite um, influential, um, you know, myself personally and also in our, in our community. And um, also of, um, the uh, Stein Valley is um, um, part of our nation. And so... Um, it's on the west side of Lytton, and so um, I learned a lot about the, the Stein Valley and about trying to have the Stein Valley protected from um, logging. And I was involved in the um, um, Stein Valley before law school as I um, um, had the opportunity to, to hike um, from uh, Lowett Lake over to uh, Lytton to Stein, part of the Stein Rediscovery Program, and was also a, a guide um, in there for two uh, summers. And so um, being involved in the Stein Valley really was a good learning experience. And then um, during um, articling, I was able to actually work on the agreement that sets aside the um, Stein Valley as a park um, based upon agreement between um, um, the, my First Nation, the Lytton First Nation, and the provincial government. Wow. So, so I had a role in that. And so it was just very insightful regarding um, the um, action required to um, take to have lands protected to um, really ensure that um, we have areas that are uh, usable by our people um, to to honor our you know way of life and, and to ensure that we have this area to use for training for our youth. That's incredible. What was the law school experience like? Was it what you expected? Was it what you had hoped you would get out of it? Uh, for me personally, there was a few courses, uh, yours, uh, First Nations Economic Development, uh, but also taxation uh, and business law that stood out to me as like, these are the things that I don't hear about in my community. These are the topics I want to take back to my community and return tax law back to my community because there's tools, there's knowledge in it that can be beneficial. So what was that experience like for you? Yes, I reflect upon my law school. Um, so in first year, we were put into um, um, sections. And in our section, we had um, um, we had a total of four students in my section, myself, um, 
my wife Cynthia, um, Ardeth, and Shannon, and so we had our own uh, um, study group. And so we um, were quite close to um, share our, our briefs, to work together. We had our own study group. And so you had to take all these classes. They're all required classes, all black letter um, law classes. Um, Aboriginal law wasn't really taught um, in first year. In fact, in property law, the uh, professor asked us to present on our um, Aboriginal title perspective because it simply wasn't offered in, in law school back then. And um, all the professors back then were, were mostly non-Native men. And um, we didn't have a lot of role models, um, although there was, um, you know, a key role model um, was um, the late Judge Alfred Scow um, and also um, Rennie Taylor. Uh, both, both of them are from uh, Lord Bay. So they're very good um, role models. Um, also, a lawyer by the name of Michael McDonald, and some others. And um, during law school, um, you know, there was some um, um, racism. Um, and so, um, in our year, we had um, I think twenty students thereabouts that um, were in first year that were uh, Indigenous. And so, um, it was a, a really a um, transformative time that you have. Um, more Indigenous students attending, and um, really, um, there's a lot of um, you know, um, you know, Aboriginal rights were becoming more to the forefront. But we didn't really have any curriculum based upon Aboriginal rights and title, um, and so we had to do a lot of you know self learning and, and and promotion of Aboriginal rights and title for inclusion in law school. Um, we had our um, um, first. Um, um, Aboriginal law days back then, um, and in third year we took um, we were the um, they had the first um, Indigenous law clinic. We were the first students in, in that, so we were able to to um, have one semester working on the downtown east side um, and, and representing um, clients who were um, required assistance, and so that was a very good, good experience and. Um, so yeah, there was some um, you know challenges of law school. Got through it, um, and, and so um, a lot of the um, principles I learned f from law school I still utilize to this day. Um, and but the um, we sort of use the you know best of both worlds in our practice. You know, use the you know mainstream law, but we also use um, um, you know law that's inf infused by our own cultural values, our own traditions, and so on. Right. What you mentioned that there was racism. How did that sort of manifest itself? Because uh, my experience, I don't think we had any of that. People felt there's like a cultural shift. People are eager to understand the wrongs of the past uh, and make amends and be a part of the solution. And it sounds like not everybody in your cohort had that same philosophy. Right. At that time, I think that there was um, the, the live issue there was um, you had a lot of the non-native students who thought that we were taking seats from their friends, and so they thought it was improper that there was um, indigenous law students who were taking their seats. And so at that time, um, and to this day, um, indigenous people are still deeply underrepresented in the legal profession, and so. Um, the law school took active steps to provide more um, seats for indigenous students, and um, you know the vast majority of students um, um, have been successful. You know, um, graduated and so on, and 
there, there are some difficulties. And um, so I think that there was a bit of a um, – um, so you have um, some overt um, racism in the student publications, um, comments during um, um, law school in, in class, um, some very um, um, you know nasty discussions um, by students you know in, in class. Um, so you have you know racism that's you know um, quite apparent from from comments and debates. And, and discussion, even during the moot, with some of the um, um, lawyers that would attend it, some of our, um, our classmates um, faced uh, racist uh, comments by um, the moot supervisor. So um, there's a lot of um, you know overt and subtle racism, and I'd say that racism still is prevalent in law to this day. And that when we look to the legal profession. You look at the composition. There's still a um, 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 we don't have the full um, representation or full inclusion of just lawyers in the profession to this day. Do you think that that is racism, or just it's going to take time to bring about that kind of change? Because I'm the first from my community to attend law school, but it's not because anybody is standing in my community's way. It's that a lot of people stop after two years, three years of their undergrad. They don't want to continue uh, education. At least that's from my community. Right. I think that um, we look at it based upon systemic racism that has been institutionalized over the years or the decades because the um, Indian Act um, did not um, enable First Nations to attend um, law school unless you gave up your Indian status. And so we look at the um, first um, um, law graduates that were Indigenous, did they actually have to give up their um, Indian status, their identity? And so you have um, the, um, um, you know, so, so, so right now there's no excuse for um, not having sufficient Indigenous lawyers in the legal profession to this day. So it's a lingering systemic racism that, that still confronts us to this day. How do we address it? Are you saying that maybe we should move it from, I think it's still around 20 seats for Indigenous people. We should move that up to like 100 uh, and just open the floodgates and, and make sure that anybody in an Indigenous community can attend it and, and get a degree? Um, I think it's about providing um, better um, education opportunities for um, for children, youth, to provide that capacity, to provide that support so that um, we have, um, um, you know, good candidates for um, law school to, to um, have them, um, when they apply, have them, you know, accept it. And so um, there's still uh, you know, a lot of, you know, very great candidates. And, and they love um, younger Indigenous students have choices now. They can go to law school, medical school, um, going to teaching and so on. It's a lot, a lot of choices. Um, but nonetheless, there's still a... Um, um, lack of um, inclusion of Indigenous people in the um, law school and, and overall in the in the legal profession. Okay, that fair enough. So, what made you interested in First Nations economic development? When did that become like an? Was that in law school that that became an interest? At what point in time uh, did Aboriginal law stand out to you? Um, yes, uh, so. It started in law school, um, learning from different um, classes, you know, um, corporations and secure transactions, property law, 
Um, and you learn about, um, and also through the um, articling process, um, you have to take a um, professional legal training course. Um, you learn about commercial transactions. And so I learned through um, articling and through my early years and uh, as a um, young lawyer that um, many of our clients are involved in business. And so we see that um, they've developed their business over time. And so they, um, most of our clients required um, corporations starting getting involved in um, forestry, um, stores, gas stations, uh, um, operating campgrounds, um, having um, leases, negotiating um, with um, industry. And um, the, uh, the communities need to have a corporate vehicle to show them from, from liability. Because um, if you have, um, um, some of our clients are involved in, um, you know, like forestry is, is um, you know, you can have you know, big liability issues that, that may arise. And so you're trying to limit the, the liability of the overall nation. So you want to shield the um, assets from, from liability from different things that, um, you know, may, may incur potential liability. So you, you need to look at a corporate model to deal with um, taxation, um, provide for tax exemption, and also to, to limit liability, but also provide the ability for the nation to participate in business. Right. That is so interesting. When did you start your law firm? Because you started Callison and Hannah. How did that come about? Because I think I read that uh, your partner you met in first year law school, um, I think in the early stages as well. So I'm just curious as to when did you decide you wanted to, to branch out on your own and, and how did working with your partner come right. about? Um, so after um, finishing articling, um, there was at that point the market was very very tight. There was actually limited opportunity to become a an associate lawyer at that point, and um, so we decided to. Um, um, so during articling, I started doing some work for some of the um, um, First Nations in, in my area. And so um, I knew that if I became a um, um, had my own law firm, that I'd be able to c- continue on that relationship. And so um, that our relationship has actually c- uh, c- continued on to this day for that one client. And so um, it's it's all about um, you know connections and relationships. And so we look at um, how we developed our practice. Um, it's based upon you know personal relationships. We didn't have a, you know website back then. And, um, but we decided, uh, so we got married, um, um, on August 31st, uh, uh 1996, um, up at, uh, Pasalco Lake. Um, and so we, um, after we, um, got married, we, um, decided to open up our own law practice. And so we formed our partnership on October 1st, 1996. And so we slowly expanded. Um, uh, most of our work is for First Nations and uh, Metis uh, communities. And um, right now we have um, five associate lawyers. Um, we have moved our office downtown. Um, and so um, we've just evolved over time. So we um, have a lot of files that we uh, are negotiating on, dealing with um, you know, uh, business inclusion, um, economic inclusion, um, and dealing with um, historic legacies. Um, I do a lot of work in specific claims. Um, um, we have negotiations with mining companies, with the Crown, um, one client that's involved in a land claim negotiation, 
and, and um, so things have really evolved over over the over the time frame because um, at that point um, um, it was really um, uh, more I would say old school, but you know um, you would you know provide you know formal legal opinions and paper everything nowadays everything's by email and um, everything's um, a bit different <laughs> so um, and we have um, very good um, you know associates who provide support and, and um, uh, four of the five of the associates are indigenous and um, so we're quite proud to to have articled um, numerous in, in indigenous students over, over the years and so we just found that many of our clients um, are involved in business endeavors because of the um, of their traditional territory, based upon the recognition of their rights, and um, they want to get benefit from development in their backyard. And so, um, typically, what happens is you have a company that wants to develop a mine, or they want to develop forestry, and they they have to deal with the um, First Nations First Nations or Métis, and um, so we're involved in the negotiations and the resulting agreements. And so um, it's created a lot of work for us over the years. So one of my big fears when people are learning about Indigenous people, our communities, is it seems like we spoon-feed them the worst facts about them. Uh, our overrepresentation in the criminal justice system, low education rates, high birth rates. It feels like when I talk to average people. Those are the things they take away. Like, I don't want to go on a reserve. I don't want to trespass and I don't want to get attacked. Like there's still those stigmas that exist today. When working as a native court worker, part of me thought that I was going to be able to fix the problem with the overrepresentation. Mm -hmm. Then you start to realize that a lot of these things are long lasting, that they're very difficult to, uh, if you help someone get counseling, that will help for six months, a year, then they may find their way back into it. And the executive director of the Native Court Workers has this great line where it's like, our goal isn't to stop someone from ever visiting court again or having court matters, because that's a, an unrealistic expectation of them. The goal is to make the space between their interactions larger and larger. So first it's three months, then it's six months, then it's a year, and then it's two years, then it's five years then one day they're not coming back. And so the goals are much more realistic within it. But taking your course, learning about business, learning about economic development, it really sounds like a lot of the long-term solutions for Indigenous communities can be found in, in developing in a way that works best for them because then you can address the education rates. You can give the supports necessary for counseling. If you have the money, you can invest in your community in the areas that they need it most. Is that what you learned? Is that uh, kind of your experience of like seeing how they come together? Um, yeah, so over the years, things have really transformed um, between the nations and the crown and that now there's a lot more um, opportunity, a lot more uh, economic opportunity, more inclusion. When we first started out, um, the communities were quite isolated from the crown in that there was no sharing of royalties. There was no sharing of forestry opportunities. There was no sharing of, um, of the development of land. And it slowly changed over time with um, different um, you know, cases and so on. And so now we have um, communities that we work for that have uh, full employment. Um, and so it's really uh, been remarkable over time where they, before they were having you know, um, small operations, and now they have multi-million dollar operations. 
And so it's really transformed um, when they have um, agreements of mining companies that provide um, benefit payments of millions of dollars per year. And um, a lot of the nations um, have these funds placed into trust and have these funds managed for the betterment of their community, providing um, um, other um, um, opportunities, um, developing more business and um, creating lots of opportunity and um, just providing more infrastructure. And so you see it over time and things have changed. I won't say wholesale, but um, you have a um, evolution from um, the, um, the, Days of the Indian agent. Um, so in Litson, the I think the last Indian agent in the community was in 1975. Um, and so um, and then you have the um, transformation of the um, offices of the First Nation offices to um, be um, um, providing more opportunity. And, the, and through the resulting agreements, you have... Um, Empowerment through uh, more opportunity, more resources, and, and so um, things have really changed over time. Um, although you, there are a lot of issues arising regarding um, ongoing uh, social economic gaps for um, for communities, um, you, you see um, the closing of that gap through um, changes in um, policy, through um, um, implementation of case law. Now we have um, UNDRIP with um, the ability of um, First Nations and Métis and Inuit to leverage their um, the, the principles of UNDRIP, you know, um, having um, companies and, and the Crown honor the principle of FPEC uh, free prior and informed consent for any uh, project. And so um, having that FPEC centered um, honored it really allows and, and also enables um, the nations to leverage this principle through negotiations to get a better result. So it's no longer, you know, trinkets. It's real sharing of the wealth now. Uh, but we've got still a long ways to go now. So when we look at Trans Mountain, although they're having some um, good jobs, some good contracts, good benefits, um, the fact is that uh, Canada, being the owner of Trans Mountain, has not uh, um, provided redress for the historic and ongoing, I'd say, trespass of the pipeline through our nation's territories. So although they're dealing with the pipeline under construction, they've not dealt with that historic legacy. So um, we're seeing now um, with um, some companies dealing with that historic legacy, and we have negotiated um, certain redress agreements with um, certain companies to deal with uh, historic compensation, to deal with historic wrongs. So we still have a long ways to go, um, but things are definitely transforming through um, different agreements, different um, rulings, and through um, you know, prudent um, uh, management. Before we go too far, I want to differentiate between Aboriginal law and Indigenous law for people who might not realize. From my understanding, Indigenous law centers around the laws that we would have had pre-colonization, the oral history, um, the, the stories around how to live a good life, uh, the responsibilities you have to the land, um, the ideas that, that have percolated over a very, very long time. Aboriginal law centers around the relationship between the Crown, the British, the French, and Indigenous people. And that has developed over time 
uh, originally with like the Calder decision and then has uh, changed as a consequence of Section 35 um, and and kind of evolved from there. Can you help us understand the, the two areas? Right. Um, so reflect upon the reference to um, laws that relates to our community. Um, so in a formal sense, um, I've seen it evolve over the years going from an Indian law to Native law to First Nation law to indigenous law. <laughs> um, so, um, but in, you know, in our legal practice, you know, we do have, um, you know, indigenous law, um, first nation law. There's, um, when I look at indigenous law, it's based upon our language, based upon our culture, it's based upon our way of life. Uh, we don't have like a code. I know there's been some um, initiatives to codify our laws, I'm not really in favor of codifying our laws because our laws are based upon our way of life, our community, our nation. It's about um, our relations with one another. Um, and so it's, um, it's really hard to, you have to, it's a really, it's a lived experience. And, and so it's really hard to have a law saying, this is the law for, for our nation. It's about the, the um, way of life. On a daily basis, um, whereas um, um, Aboriginal law deals with um, the intersection between um, the, um, the Crown, um, Section thirty-five of the Constitution Act, and the way of life of our people. So it's uh, intermixed, and so in our practice, we use a bit of both. Um, and so in our specific claim um, hearings. We're able to bring in uh, oral history here, um, oral history um, evidence, um, have evidence brought forward in, in language through translation and so on. And so the um, judge is able to make a ruling based upon the historic record, which is really the archival record, plus the oral history evidence, which is infused with our um, legal principles. That is fascinating. So your your mainstay is Aboriginal law in that you help Indigenous communities negotiate. Do you feel like one of the big fears is that Indigenous people are being forced to choose between the environment and getting out of poverty? How do you kind of see those issues? Because there's arguments, no pipeline, because... It's bad for the environment long term, and Indigenous people uh, care deeply about the environment. And then the other side is it's not fair to ask them to stay in this economic position long term for the environment because they're experiencing detrimental impacts by staying in poverty. Right. Um, so for for a community nations, it comes down to the, um, the right of self determination regarding how do they want to. Um, um, you know, manage their lands. When I say manage, it's regarding you make decisions regarding their lands. The problem though is that the crown has a process for third-party developers to develop crown lands, which really are lands, and, and so you have the uh, ongoing conflict. And so, to this day, in, in, in the province of BC, we don't have the recognition of our original title. So, even though we may self-determine to um, set aside watersheds, um, set aside areas for um, um, more sustainable development, you have the pressure of the Crown fostering um, industrial development. And so it's, uh, it's up to the community, but sometimes it's hard for the community to um, oppose a project because 
the crown wants the pipeline to be built. Uh, um, so it's it's very tough. But for on single projects, you know, maybe a um, you know, forestry development, it's really up to the community to inform that. They can say yes, no, or let's have more of a process. And so it's really about um, you know obtaining the, the will of the people. What do the what do the membership say? Um, and to find balance between you know having sustainable jobs and you know long term jobs or short term jobs. And so it's really up to the community to really decide. Um, so acting as legal counsel for communities, we have to really honor the direction of the community. And so some will will want to be involved, but some may say, no, we, we don't want to be involved. We got to respect that. Interesting. So uh, when I wrote my directed research paper on First Nations economic development, I kind of understood that there's like a rubric. The first step is to consult the community, sit down with with the members. In uh, my community's case, we have around 650. Try and connect with them, understand where the problems what do you think the solutions are? Where do you want the community to be in 10, 20, 50 years? Uh, what would it lo- what would progress look like to you? Um, and how do we improve the, the circumstances of your life? And then with all of that information, you develop a comprehensive community plan, an economic development plan, uh, similar to what municipalities often have, which is kind of like an official community plan. And then you give that back to the members to give feedback on what did we miss? What did we forget? What did we underestimate? And then you start to try and implement those plans. Is that is that generally uh, a, a good kind of best practice? Yes, with respect to the uh, planning process. So the uh, comprehensive, comprehensive community planning process you're talking about is mostly for a you know First Nation on on the reserve. Doesn't fully address the um, traditional territory fully, and so what happens here is that um, the you might have good plans for the traditional territory. But then you have a developer coming in and wants to develop a mine. Then you have a competing interest. And then you want the crown, you have the crown who wants to support that mine or, or that pipeline. And so you have these competing interests. And, and that's the problem is that you have these legacy projects in the territories. You have these legacy pipelines, mines, forestry. You have the impacts of these linear projects, uh, highways, um, hydro uh, transmission lines, um, you get um, natural gas pipelines and so on. So you have all these ongoing colonial legacies through the territory and then pressing um, pressure from um, from developers. So so although you, the community may have a plan, you, how do you reconcile that plan with a broader initiative of industry and the Crown? And that's the, the thing right now. So, so right now we don't have the the full respect for coal management in BC on the traditional territory, um, I just call it lip service. So, <laughs> um, but in the on the on the reserve, yeah, planning is great. Um, it's needed, um, and, and um, but how do you provide that planning process to the whole traditional territory, and how have industry and the crown honor and respect that broader nation plan for the traditional territory? Right. That seems like it would be a particular challenge because the power of money to influence people's decisions, the long-term economic benefits to the government, to that business, how is there a best practice in regards to trying to square 
that that issue? Is there is there a leaning towards industry in that regard? Is there a leaning to First Nations communities right now in that regard? What what do you sort of see? Right. Okay. So, so you know, basically, the the colonial framework to this day favors development by developers. Um, you know, fostered by by the crown, by the province, by Canada, and, and so um, you know, if UNDRIP being implemented. Um, which is a you know game changer. We'll see what happens over the ensuing years, but since um, BC has um, um, agreed to adopt um, UNDRIP through their drip out legislation, things have not changed on the ground. Um, so we're you know um, at least two years into the drip out legislation, and you still have um, the crown making you know major decisions over you know um, land development. So it has to. Switch to that, um, uh, or you know, have a more of a level playing field, and that there needs to be inclusion of of the um, First Nations um, developing land um, in BC, being co-managers or, or managers of the land base within their traditional territory, and so um, so we need to have um, the Crown change their policy, change laws to ref- uh, to respect the planning process. Of the nations, and, and the planning process requires um, meeting and meeting and meeting to um, um, ascertain the will of the people, will of the membership. Interesting. So the big fear around free, prior, and informed consent is that it's going to shut down business, and that BC is going to close for business if we were to do something like that. What? And I've just I've heard that echoed in, in news questions and stuff. What? What is the response to that? What is? How do we understand this in a healthier way than just this is just going to shut down all the business? Right. Okay. Really, the the EPIC standard um, has been implemented for quite a few years in BC, probably in the last. 10 to 20 years, the um, having a nation providing their free prior informed consent. So no project goes ahead today about involvement, inclusion of affected indigenous groups. Um, and that's been happening for many, many years now. And so the sky's not falling in. Um, you can have resulting agreements. And so there's agreements on everything that happens nowadays. You know, on the recovery, you look at the, um, the, um, um, Atmospheric river event, you know, the, the, what's happened with the Coquihalla um, highway and, and the highway eight and, and other, um, roads that you have companies partnering and joint venturing with, um, affected indigenous communities that provides a win-win for the, both the company, but also for the community. They get, um, um, preferential opportunity for jobs, um, contracts, some sharing of the uh, business profits. Being involved in um, um, you know management decisions, so um, so FPEC is here to stay, um, and um, it's evolved over time, and it does provide um, greater inclusion of the affected indigenous communities for a better um, community, you know, better nation, basically. So, which one do you think is going to have a long-term, larger effect? Section thirty-five. Or FPIC coming about and giving more power to the First Nations voices? Um, so, really, um, the UNDRIP and FPIC and Section 35 have really intersected over time. Because when you look at um, Section 35, based upon the Chicolton decision, where the Crown um, must you know, respect and um, acknowledge Aboriginal title and implement Aboriginal title. Um, Aboriginal title involves um, having 
the crown and industry respect the consent of the nation. And and so, um, you know, um, consent is part of the FPIC standard. And so um, the problem right now is that we still have the crown denying the existence of Aboriginal title in BC. Um, and so um, to achieve full reconciliation, we need to have the crown um, acknowledge and recognize and implement Aboriginal title and um, that will provide the ability for nations to um, properly provide their consent for any development happening within their territory. Interesting. When you say the crown, who are we talking about? Because the crown has often been described at various levels of government, um, and you're saying particularly in BC, and I think at one point in time it was involved with like actual crown council who also prosecute like criminal files and stuff so who when we're talking about the crown who are we talking about yeah so the crown i'm referring to is both the provincial crown and the federal crown so the you know so the provincial crown is the provincial government the federal crown is the federal government so in bc you have the provincial government having administrative control over crown lands um, and you have um, the federal government having um, um, administrative lawmaking authority over um certain federal matter, matters, including fisheries, uh, major projects, um, pipelines. And, and um, so you have them um, intersecting on certain projects. And um, so you intersect to, um, and even with the Indian Act, you have um, reserve lands held by Her Majesty for use and benefit of a First Nation. And so Her Majesty is the crown, and so um, we really need to, to devolve um, certain um, um, power over to affected indigenous groups over time and, and through through negotiations. And so the the problem right now is that the province you know makes claim to crown land, and we have urgent title. And how do we reconcile these two differences? Um, we don't have. The premier, premier are going to First Nation saying, look, we recognize your title and we want you to um, have the ability to um, manage your title lands. We don't have the province coming to our people um, saying, yes, let's implement your title. They say that you have to negotiate it through a land claim process, but the land claim process involves the release of urgent title in the name of certainty. And so there's an ongoing um, conflict between the viewpoint of how to recognize title in BC, and, and so it's going to take time. Uh, but we do. Uh, but um, you know, our communities are getting impatient, I guess. So yeah, and this seems like it gets even more complicated when we talk about getting out from under the Indian Act. Uh, the challenge, it seems like, is different communities are trying to figure out the best way forward for them, and it seems to go in such different directions, and I'm wondering if you can help us understand it, because I, th- I believe it's the Nishka that chose a treaty, which is different than what other communities more recently are choosing, like, I believe, Tawasin. Can you help us understand the different paths that communities are taking in regards to moving out from underneath the Indian Act? Right. Um, so the uh, Indian Act was imposed upon uh, First Nations in BC really um, during the reserve creation process in the um, 1870s, 1880s in BC, and then um, came more um, imposed in the 1950s. Um, so um, 
Israeli imposed through the requirement for um, elected uh, chief and councils in the 1950s. And um, so the um, so we still have the Indian Act to this day. So we, we need to move into uh, decolonization to devolve those reserve lands to those First Nations if they so choose. So really a First Nation should say or could say, we want to be the full manager and owner of our reserve lands. And so there should be the ability to enter into a self-government agreement um, with, with Canada to um, have those lands transferred over to the um, control of the First Nation. So historically, Canada has achieved that through um, modern land claim agreements, first involving the Nishka and later on involving the Tuasan. And so those agreements um, resulted in the transfer of their reserve lands into lands owned by those First Nations in, in now Fee Simple. And so um, um, in, in now um, Canada has a process to have a um, um, more of a nuanced approach through um, land code, whereby if you adopt a, a land code as a First Nation, you can control your um, reserve lands um, you don't need to go to Canada to have a lease approved. So right now, um, uh, most lands, most reserve lands are underdeveloped because to develop them properly, you need to have um, Canada provide their consent to any um, leases. So it takes on average around six years to have um, reserve lands leased for commercial development, wow. which is a very long time. And, and so, um, but, but Canada is not... Um, allowing all First Nations at once to have a land code. They have what's called a rolling 30. So only 30 First Nations across Canada can negotiate a land code. This is a very, very slow process to have a land code adopted. And, you know, my thinking is that the um, Indian Affairs should shut down their um, Indian Affairs office on Melville, Melville Street, devolve First Nations to devolve um, the Reserve Land Administration and the um, Indian Act file to First Nations if they so choose. Um, so we need to get into the phase of devolution to devolve that colonial power to self-governing nations. Interesting. So what do you think that would change, and how fast do you think that that would make big waves in change? Um, it would. It could happen over the next you know, five years quite easily, next 10 years. Um, the, the, the end result is that um, First Nations will have the ability to administer their own reserve lands without having um, Canada oversee any um, administration of their reserve lands. And because um, Canada right now has a fiduciary duty to ensure that any development is in the best interests of, of the First Nation. So um, Canada has a bit of paranoia, I say, about um, their fiduciary duty. So they're very careful and cautious which results in huge delays in the development of reserve lands. So you have really, um, um, I'd say, um, 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 wealth that's possible but it's locked in because of the whole colonial process to develop reserve lands. Do you think that's in part due to the Musqueam decision? Um, the Muscom decision, which is the, I think you're referring to as the Glass decision. The, the golf course. The golf course. Oh, yeah, the Shaughnessy. That's the, the Garen decision. So Garen involved, um, uh, Canada, um, negotiating a, um, long-term lease to a, um, 
third-party golf course for the leasing of the uh, Muscombe Reserve Lands. And so um, Canada did not disclose the um, um, deal um, um, to the um, First Nation to Musqueam. And so they were uh, found to be in breach of their fiduciary duty to the beneficiary Musqueam First Nation because the um, um, Musqueam were vulnerable to the discretion of, of Canada. And so, um, so yeah, so Canada um, is, you know, very live to their um, fiduciary duty arising from the Garen decision regarding the management of reserve lots. So they take a very careful approach regarding any decision to lease any reserve lots nowadays. In the north right now, we have these experiences where First Nations are standing up for their land rights, uh, similar to what happened a long time ago in like Ontario, I think in Manitoba. Uh, can you help us understand those issues? There were a lot of protests going on, um, a lot of uh, strife and, and, and fighting. And so I'm just, as an outsider, it seems like the relationship between hereditary chiefs and elected officials seemed to have been kind of the catalyst for, for a national discussion around truth and reconciliation. Right. Um, it's not an emanate from the um, court case um, um, initiated by the uh, Kikasan and Wasotan nations back in the 1980s. And they were seeking a declaration of Aboriginal title over their uh, lands. And they um, they went to trial before um, um, former Justice uh, McEachern, and he disregarded their um, oral history evidence, saying it's not good evidence. And that case was appealed up to the uh, Supreme Court of Canada, and the court found that uh, Justice uh, McEachern um, should not have ignored or disregarded the oral history evidence of, of the Kikasan and Wasotan and um, ordered a new trial um, and pr- um, set out the test to prove Aboriginal title. And the test included the requirement for a judge to consider um, oral history evidence as um, having a equal footing as um, other historic evidence. And so, so although a new trial was ordered, the, um, the trial never proceeded. And then you have more case law over time that confirmed the existence of Aboriginal title, namely the you know the Haida case and the Chukotan case. So you have a lot of frustration in that um, had uh, Justice McEachern properly uh, considered oral history evidence, um, there should have been a finding of fact that the Gikasan Wasotan had Aboriginal title, and so. Um, then you have the um, proposed uh, pipelines in the in that area, and um, you have a lot of frustration in that you have um, um, a very good um, Sup- Supreme Court Canada pronouncement involving the Kikasan and Wasotan, but the Crown ignoring um, this decision and um, fostering the um, building of. Um, and, up, and development of pipelines through the lands um, of the Gikasan and Wet'suwet'en. And up there you have, in, in their um, nation, they have a um, a traditional governing system that uh, manages their traditional territories. And um, you have, um, 
in the same area, you have um, First Nations that um, have um, authority under the um, Indian Act over their reserve lands, but you have the, the same, you know, uh, members, members who belong to the the nation, but members who belong to the um, First Nation constituted under the Indian Act. You have a bit of a tension there internally, um, and so the issue here is, you know, who has standing to represent the nation for Aboriginal title. And so um, um, the Crown um, um, agreed that the um, hereditary chiefs had standing. Um, they um, um, had a um, mediation, and there's a resulting um, MOU, I believe, that was signed off, acknowledging the role of the hereditary chief um, system to be the governing body for for the crown to address. Um, I don't know the status of what's happened there regarding the role of the heritage chiefs um, and their um, um, addressing this issue of the crown, but uh, that's one of the you know it's outstanding issue. Uh, you know, we were not involved in that in that case, um, but it's a, it's an ongoing issue for for nations um, regarding you know who has standing. To represent the the members for the um, um, recognition of Aboriginal title. Interesting. Was it is it hard to watch the disagreements? Like you see videos on online of police officers there, almost ready to go, almost ready to fight with Indigenous people, and the mindset of the people there are: this is my my grandparents' land, my great-grandparents' land, we have a connection to this and we don't want this to go through. And you can sympathize with them uh, because it's so personal to them. And then it almost feels out of place for the police to be there in some regard because it's not a violent situation unless things escalate further. It's It's people just standing their ground and trying to protect their land. And so when you see the police there, it almost gives those inklings of what we talked about before of children being brought to school with police officers. Like it's not the right place for them to be. How do you look at that situation? Yes. Yeah, so if any protests, you have to, uh, you know, as a lawyer and also as a, you know, a first nation person, you have to look at, um, you know, as the context of what's happening. And, and, and so it's not, you know, your own community, it's a different nation. Uh, but nonetheless, you have to you know, examine you know, what's, what's happening and, and, um, you know, there, in, you know, this is the ongoing impact of you know colonization regarding, um, you know, um, how, how do you deal with this on a community basis? And so, I always say it's just through a lot of dialogue, a lot of discussion, have lots of meetings, have understanding, um, and and because um, certainly it's it's very difficult when you have a police presence in a community. And so, um, as an advocate, it's always trying to have. Um, a process to have um, a way for people to um, um, to be heard, to listen to concerns, and have a process to try to resolve the conflict. And, and so it's really up to the the nation itself, the community, and and, and the um, government to work together to try to find workable solutions. Interesting. So. I'm wondering, what are the best case scenarios? You've gotten to work with various First Nations communities. You've seen mining. You've seen fish businesses. Can When I think of 
growing communities that are setting a positive example. I personally think of Stahelis, First Nation, Musqueam, Squiala, Shiacton. Those are within my general region, um, and I've obviously seen them develop and seen the the resources they're able to provide to their community members. But for you, you've worked across BC. Uh, you understand kind of what's going on more at a national level. What communities stand out to you where it's like they've got they've got something going on here that people general people might not know about, but they are they're they're kicking butt. Right. Um, usually, it's based upon having a good um, community process. Um, you know, where you have um, sound policy, um, sound laws, sound process, um, active community engagement, and um, creating a good circle um, to um, listen to the community, have a good circle of um, you know good. Um, it's a good like people who have the capacity, who, who have the knowledge, who uh, want to work together as a team. So having very good teams in place, uh, um, and so you might have um, different teams that um, form part of the greater circle, and so um, so you're having you know um, the, the leadership supported by um, good teams, having um, the leadership work of the membership. Having a full circle, fully inclusive, and um, just trying to get the best result, but recognizing it may take time to achieve that result. Nothing happens overnight. Um, there may be conflict on, on along the way, but trying to um, you know um, look at different um, you know possibilities, keeping an open mind. Uh, but you have to have a solid foundation, and, and the solid foundation is for us is you know, providing. The, the legal tools of having, um, you know, the best contract in place, um, you know, policy in place, laws in place, um, reporting out um, information. And so we talked about um, FPEC um, between a nation and company and between the nation and government. The nation also has to have an FPEC standard with their members to um, ensure that members have um, information, um, have prior information, are fully involved. Um, and so when you, um, and you have, you know, the best management practices so that you have the, the, um, money is invested, um, and you have, um, a re- return on investment and having the ability to have membership, um, you know, benefit from any, um, resulting, uh, benefit agreements. So you just have to look at the overall framework. And so, um, some nations have been more pronounced and more out there, um, some are more quieter. Um, so you see uh, different um, levels of, su- of success. Um, and you can, you can learn from, from one another. Um, but, you know, what are the best practices, you know, and so you look at, you know, the best practices of, of um, ensuring that you have, um, um, you know, lots of training, lots of capacity, and, and um, um, and, and just sometimes, yeah, it's just a lot of hard work and lots of meetings. <laughs> so I'm interested, what are some case studies? Are there some communities you look at and you go like, if people want to get started in this, this is sort of a general rubric. Look at, I don't know, I think the Dene, you've worked like, which communities stand out to you where it's just like they're they're moving in the right direction, they're, right. they're doing what they need to do? Um, a lot of it's based upon um, location, um, the um, access to resources, 
and the will, you know the willingness of the crown to negotiate. Um, so I look at um, my wife's community, the, the Tauten. They've been quite successful because um, they have had a lot of uh, mines in their um, territory over, over uh, many years. Um, it provides you know very good jobs for their membership, um, and and they're fully involved in, in all aspects of their of the economy um, in their territory. Um, in you know my own area, when I look at um, the. 15 bands in my own area. Every band is a different level of, of development. Um, but you also have to look at the impacts of uh, colonization. So um, some communities have been uh, more affected by residential school um, and maybe they don't have the same access to resources. Um, so I find that um, communities that are able to develop their reserve lands for you know leasing have done quite well. Um, and so you look at, you know, um, the West Bank First Nation as one. They have their own uh, self-government, their own um, um, lawmaking ability, and um, they've done quite well. Um, and, you know, look, you look at um, Osoyce is always put out as a, as a model. Um, but, but, you know, again, it's about location. You know, they both, both those nations are located in the Okanagan, so they have very good, um, you know, locations for development. Um and then you have um, some nations that are in the um, Lower Mainland that have benefited from you know their reserve land development. Um, so you have to look at the um, and some nations have um, 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 independent power projects in their backyard. So they have agreements for these uh, power projects that provide ongoing um, revenue, um, and some have um, agreements of, of mining companies that provide um, you know revenue sharing sharing of the mine tax. And um, so there's, you know, throughout, um, across Canada, there's many examples of of nations that are doing very, very well. Um, but yet many nations are still underdeveloped to this day. Um, and they're underdeveloped for various reasons. Um, and maybe it's because of um, lack of redress by Canada regarding historic wrongs. So you have many nations that have outstanding specific claims. And so Canada has ongoing liabilities for these historic specific claims. Um, that um, there's virtually thousands and tens of thousands of these claims across Canada. That are, so they're unresolved to this day. Um, and um, you have these ongoing legacy projects of these ongoing mines, um, um, linear projects, that have not benefited um, the indigenous nations. How can we provide um, the opportunity for these nations to benefit from these projects to this day? And so, um, um, yeah. So it's really it's it depends upon the, the nation to leverage their their assets, their their land assets, their territory assets, their resource assets, um, and also their human assets. Um, and, and human assets, you know, is really their members, you know. Um, you know, supporting their members to be, you know, um, trained to to have, um, you know, full education. I mean, I can talk about education. It's just not about, you know, the, the you know, mainstream education. It's about, you know, having, you know, cultural education and so on. Um, yeah. 
Interesting, because that is something I'm we experienced in my community is we had a specific claim for Seabird Island Band. Uh, originally, the area of Seabird was given uh, as land for the seven different communities. And so the seven different communities within the area all proceeded with a specific claim uh, to be paid out because uh, people came to the federal government and said, hey, we'd like to be our own reserve. And the government said, sure, why not? Uh, not really thinking about the fact that they were taking away land that was shared between various communities. One of the challenges we faced, though, was that we got a significant portion of money, but then we didn't have a well-articulated plan of what we were going to do with that money. So we ended up giving, I think, around $15,000 to each member and not having like a way of saying, hey, this might not be great for you in in the long term. We might be able to build better resources, better services, buy back other land that interests us to kind of make sure that we act in the long term seven generations interest of our community. Mm -hmm. Right. So for any resulting compensation package, you might have a large uh, amount that's paid over. You might have ongoing payments. And this is um, what comes down to accountability and choices for, for the leadership and community. So the, the um, per capita payout is pr- probably not the preferred approach for sustainable community um, development. Provides some short-term um, payments, which is great for the members. But looking at the long-term, you know, looking down at the future generations, um, you might be wise to use those funds to, you know, buy lands, buy back lands, um, you know, um, um, build up your businesses, um, buy businesses, um, invest in equipment, um, and, and make other investments in the community. Maybe invest in, in more education opportunities, training programs, um, buildings, um, and, and um, provide for, you know, healing programs, cultural programming, uh, language development. And so on. So, looking at the the community needs, um, and so it's really up to the community to have those priorities. Um, but it comes down to um, having the community to be able to inform the process to um, how those monies are, are invested, expanded, and accounted. Um, so, most nations are very, very good regarding involving um, you know the, the membership um, and having planning and investing the monies wisely. Um, but there are some nations um, that are lacking to this day where there's no accountability, no audits. Um, and and um, so that's sort of an ongoing issue. Yeah, that's one of my questions for you is um, I'm running for chief of my community right now, and I don't want to pretend I have all the answers. I don't pretend to know what it's like for them to live on reserve. So one of my hopes is to really start that community consultation process meaningfully, listen to every member, try and understand where they're at on and off reserve, and trying to develop a plan around what their experiences and what their hopes are. But I'm wondering, should I be looking to work with a law firm? Should I be putting that into the back of my mind now and working with a, a financial company to help make sure that when we do develop, we have a plan in place? And then this kind of dovetails into my questions about economic development corporations and where they come in. Right, right. Yes, for, for any, like for community development, you know, quite often you have a, a team, you know, you might have a law firm, the the lawyers might help negotiate. You might have your own negotiator. You might have your own um, planning firm. 
you might have your own architect, your own engineers, um, community planners. Um, so you have a whole whole team, financial planners. So you have a whole team, um, and it really depends upon financing. You know, do you have the finances to to build out a you know very good team? You might have a small team, but end day is that you have to you know keep pace with the community. Um, and, and and so how do you engage the the community? Provide uh, information. And it's like a, a looping process, you know, regarding, you know, listen to the issues, um, what, what are the plans, and to have those plans implemented with the support of your team. And um, so that's always the, 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 the live issue. So I find that, you know, working with, um, you know, leadership, um, you know, quite often it's an ongoing working relationship to try to get the, the best result. And um, it's also being you know, patient. Um, things will take time. I call it the Canadian way because <laughs> it just things just take time. Um, and to um, you know, shop around. Uh, there's choices, um, and um, um, you know, you know, get references and so on. Because um, sometimes you just sort of fall into you know the same advisor. Sometimes it's good to maybe change it up, maybe. Um, and um, or use um, different um, professionals to 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 assist, and also to to um, build up membership by you know um, having you know membership involved in negotiations, um, part of the the negotiation team. You know, always having a, a I call it a circle, having a good circle, yeah. um, and, and having that circle. Um, also um, involved with membership. You know, having the, the full circle. So. Interesting. So do you think that it's just a, a time thing where we just bring in good resources and things start to improve? Is it pretty consistent that things get a lot better with economic development? I don't know why, but I feel like there's some people I've spoken to that are almost skeptical of economic development. Right, right. So really it's uh, having the, the the leadership know how active um, can um, occur for the community within the community, like on the reserve, but also within the t- territory, having an understanding regarding how um, leadership may um, have oversight of the um, controlled corporation, um, having an understanding regarding you know um, the use of partnerships, joint ventures, and having an understanding regarding if you're negotiating with a company, you know what are their interests? What's the interests of the crown? What's the interests of the province? Because everybody has their own different interests. And learning regarding how negotiations um, happen over time, and so um, just having more information. So um, you may have, you know, um, five people on leadership, and um, they may not have a business background, but over time through training and, and sharing, that they'll have uh, appreciation regarding um, the benefit of having a um, corporation. And in fact, most communities have more than one corporation to have multiple corporations for different um, for different businesses. Do you think that government funding is at all dangerous? Just looking at my community, it reminds me, I don't know if you've ever seen the Fast and Furious movies, but there's one where there's this guy, I think it's in Mexico or Brazil, and he goes, we give them just enough to get by, but not enough to ever revolt or, or stand up or to, to fight. And that's that's how I feel in some regard is that it's almost like we get so used to every year we get about this amount of money and then we have to allocate this amount of money that the imagination that it could be double, triple, quadruple, whatever we're used to 
starts to fade away from the minds of the members. And that's one of the things I think about in regards to economic development is we need to kind of get off of government funding, stop waiting for it to arrive and start having a sense of independence, a sense of sovereignty, a sense of we have our own bucket of money to pull from if an issue arises. We're not solely reliant on somebody checking a box at in Ottawa or something like that. Right. So respect to um, government funding, so funding is always required for, as a governing body, you always need to have some form of transfer payment to um, provide the capacity to provide services to your membership, whether it's uh, education, whether it's training, um, health, um, for, for welfare. You know, so you need to have the capacity to provide these basic human rights. Housing is a basic human right. So you need to have um, funding for housing, for, for renovations. But at the same time, you want to make sure that the um, membership um, um, are able to have their own source of revenue from, from business opportunities so that you can make the, the, you know, everybody's, you know, proud that saying that this is our business. We, we raised, um, $1 million to this business or maybe it's 10 million. This is our, our own financing and that this financing, you know, built these community buildings, um, or created these uh, jobs, these, these businesses. Um, so it's regarding how to, Grow your own source revenue over time, so that this is your, your you know your business profits being reinvested in, in the community. And we've seen that um, for many um, nations, they've grown from having no own source revenue to having multiple millions of own source revenue that's reinvested back into the community. And so it's um, I'm quite happy to see when I see the um, financial statements that you know the community has. You know, X million or XX million from these businesses that are reinvested. So, so I'm not involved in the financial aspect. We're just involved in helping negotiate the agreements. But it's great to see how um, communities invest back into the into the community. Yeah, and then they have opportunities. It sounds like to buy back land to make sure that there's housing resources, that there's proper development, and that there's a certain quality of life for everyone. And then people really start to flourish. Because the thing that breaks my heart the most, um, and I'm sure you've seen this, is like depending on your postal code, it kind of dictates whether or not you're likely to graduate high school, go to university, um, have a high quality career, have your health taken care of, like different things that it makes me sad to think that just because you live uh, in, on this reserve, which is three blocks away from the municipality, you have a different quality of life that you have to go through. I just think that that's incredibly unfair. Yes, I think I think through uh, supports providing capacity. So I think that it you know each nation's a bit different, but it's trying to provide those supports, especially to those who need those supports. And so you have. Um, um, some families that may need more support just because of their circumstances, maybe because of um, family breakdown, um, maybe have um, recovery from you know drug and alcohol. You just need to have those supports. And so um, having those supports um, turns um, over time into you know positive outcomes. And so so I know that for myself, uh, you know um, through my career, I've received supports from, Different, you know, um, other professionals, other community members who provide, um, you know, opportunity, who provide um, supports, who provide coaching, and, and so um, 
it's always trying to provide those supports to the community so that they, they have the ability to um, be their best. What do you think the catalyst is for a community to go from struggling to strong economic development, long-term planning, community consultation? Do you think it's uh, a charismatic leader who cares? Do you think that it's just over time getting tons of people kind of filling those roles on chief and council that understand what's been tried before, what's failed? How do communities take that major first step towards opening the doors for business? Right. It's really having a good um, um, governance framework, you know, policy, laws in place, training, and then also negotiating the best agreements, the the best agreements with industry, with the crown, and also ensuring that um, some land is perhaps available for for business development in the community, based upon you know business community choices. So just trying to leverage your, your land, leverage your resources leverage your traditional territory into the best result. Um, so it doesn't need to be like full cell development, but just trying to have some, having some, you know, um, small victories and build upon those small victories into bigger victories. And I said victories like having good agreements. Yeah. Interesting. Do you think that when First Nations are sitting down, who do you think is the more challenging person to work with, industry or government? Um, it really depends upon the project and the openness and willingness of the partners. So um, some um, companies are very good. They, they know that they have to honor and, and implement the EPIC standard, but some companies try to get away with things cheaply. Um, and so um, it's, it's um, really about how companies have um, evolved over the years. And so um, it's really uh, it's a whole mindset, I'm trying to make it a you know win-win that it could be good for the community, it could be good for the company, um, so you get um, the best results. It's also um, you know having the the government, and so the, the issue of government is that um, it's you're dealing with um, a bureaucracy that's very slow to change, and trying to show that the sky's not going to fall in that it could be a win-win that um, if you provide, you know, um, sharing of the wealth, that it's a win-win-win. Um, and, and so um, the sharing of the wealth is, you know, more sharing of the royalties, um, more sharing of um, decision-making, being fully included in any project. What has your experience been like when people work with you? What is your philosophy? A First Nation calls you up, says, we need your help. What is your role in these negotiations and helping communities start to succeed? It's to understand the priorities and plans of the, of the nation. And they, they set the agenda. Um, and they may want to uh, partner up. They may want to develop. Is trying to um, have a team to get the best result, whether it's the compensation, the financial payments, the the terms of the of the, of the agreement for opportunities, and so it's always trying to push the envelope, and and um, when you you push the envelope so much that um, you don't know whether you, you'll get it or not, but um, you may get more money, you may get more opportunities, you may get more preferential opportunities. You just keep on pushing the envelope, knowing that it's um, 
all they can do is say no, uh, but you always try to achieve yes. So <laughs> what would be your um, pitch be for somebody who's like, um, we're choosing between Aboriginal lawyers. What is your differentiation between other Aboriginal lawyers? Um, I think it's trying to understand and respect the community and um, be, in, be in step with the community and provide the best results so that we know that they have choices and um, it's always to um, honor the, the instructions to um, ensure that they have the, the full range of options and to work with them for the, the best solution and ensuring that um, they have the, the um, um, you know, the, the best agreement possible and um, to ensure that um, the resulting agreement, um, um, you know, um, stands the test of time. And um, the thing of, of negotiating, um, you know, impact benefit agreements is that you can never, you know, fully foresee what may happen in the future. So you always try to anticipate things that may happen. And sometimes you have to have a, you know, a phase approach to an agreement. Interesting. My big fear, if I am elected, is that industry or government is going to have a number, their maximum or whatever it is. Uh, they always come in, say, hypothetically, just throwing out numbers, they have $1,000 and they go, we'll give you $1,000 for this. My big fear is that behind the scenes, their their max is like $100,000, a million dollars. Is that a stress? Do you feel like there is good mechanisms in place to make sure that that's not going on? Right. So usually in, in um, negotiations involving money, you, um, it's always uh, sometimes informed by appraisal. It involves land. It involves fisheries you know, having a, um, um, a um, um, fishery assessment. Um, so you just have certain work with different um, advisors to inform the financial envelopes. It's not guesswork. So you try to ensure that if you have um, assessments, evaluations, um, appraisal, that you always go beyond those professional reports, trying to um, get the best result. And so it's a principle of um, you know actual compensation is that it's not just based upon um, the the reports, it's based upon the losses to the community. And those losses may not be calc- you can't calculate them on a calculator, but you try to provide a um, a number that will that will um, honor the the community for for the impacts, and, and they'll be in, embraced. And, and so it's not perfect, but you try to you know push and push and push, and and get um, a, um, you know, a fair result. One fear that I have now, I just sat down, I don't know if you've heard of him, his name's Marvin Rossano, and uh, he's a biologist, he was uh, involved in the documentary Heart of the Fraser, the Heart of the Fraser is from Mission all the way up to Hope, uh, and apparently 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 million fish swam through the Heart of the Fraser and spawned and developed. And when I sat down with him, he was like, we're at about 700,000, which is nowhere near the number that it was 10 years ago. And he has sincere concerns that all of the Fraser is going to be developed one day, that it's not going to be a river anymore. Uh, that recently, I think it was, uh, I could be wrong on the organization, but Claussen Farms bought some of the islands in between the Fraser and that that is likely going to be developed over time and that they're going to develop dams on each side to start to build more 
I'm not sure agriculture probably. And when I asked him like, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to get out of this? How are we going to make sure we don't lose those fish populations? He was like, nobody cares. Nobody's doing anything. He's like, I've presented dozens of times to thousands of people, uh, to first nations communities, to universities, to experts in government, to provincial federal. And he's like, we may just not have fish really flowing through the Fraser anymore. Um, that is the trajectory we seem to be on and nobody's doing anything about it. The fear that comes in is we're fighting for Aboriginal rights and title. We're fighting for the right to have access to this, these fish. But my community held our salmon ceremony in August because we were waiting so long for fish to come. I'm interested in your thoughts on this. What, how do we look at this when uh, it looks like some of the ecosystems that we care about are just disappearing? They're not going to offer any of the fruits that they once offered. We're going to hit a point where it's like, what are we fighting for if there's no fish in the freezer for our fishing rights? Right. So, in respect to um, fishing, so, you know, I personally, I fished myself. It was a, you know, very good year, year this year. Um, but, you know, the last two years were pretty lean. Um, and so, because um, the, you know, last two years, the fishers closed basically to the sockeye. So, the last two years, we caught um, springs. This year, we caught uh, sockeye. Um, and um, so, in respect to the fishery, is that, the big issue here is that um, you know the fisheries managed by um, DFO, um, Fisheries and Oceans Canada. There is no true co-management for the fisheries. So although um, fishery um, is um, you know our people's food, we're not involved in the co-management of the fishery. That needs to change. And so so um, how can Canada be more inclusive to manage the fishery? Um, how do you reconcile the, um, you know, the commercial fisheries with the food fishery? Um, and then you have the, you know, climate change, which is becoming more serious now. Um, and so how do you, um, you know, deal with, um, you know, the water temperature, you know, increase and so on. So these are very, you know, dear issues to, to our nations, you know, regarding how, how do we address climate change? while ensuring that our people have access to the fishery for, you know, food, social ceremonial purposes. And um, so it needs to be, you know, greater involvement of our people um, to talk about, you know, um, resource development pressure. So, so our people should be involved in, um, you, know, um, you know, planning, dealing with uh, development to ensuring that the riparian areas are protected and, and um, for, for the fishery. And, and um so it just needs to probably have a different mindset because the fisheries are still managed like they were, um, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And so things have not evolved. So that is one example. I think there's conservation officers now that are indigenous. I read in a short article about something going on in northern BC around indigenous communities being given back the responsibility of sort of maintaining habitats and stuff. Uh, do you know more about that? Um, I haven't seen, I know that when we were, um, last summer, we, um, were sought by the fisheries and oceans for, after fishing and they, they um, want to know what, you know, actually they stopped us on the river as fishing for spring and, and also as packing out and also got stopped again. And so I know that I believe some of them were, were indigenous. They didn't actually identify being indigenous, but, um, you know, it's great to having more, um, indigenous officers that work for Canada, but at the same time, we need to have more officers that, um, are, um, 
um, we need to have our own nations who have their own officers who have officer um, power, and and that's going to be the, 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 the very big issue here in um, how to have our own people um, manage the fishery, be the stewards of the fishery. Yeah, I think there's so much to learn from indigenous knowledge keepers, elders around keeping healthy environments, ecosystems. Like, um, I'm sure you follow John Burroughs, like some of his writing on how we look at indigenous knowledge and apply it to how we maintain. I think the, the section I saw was him and butterflies and his mother, uh, understanding that if butterflies don't visit this year, it means we've done something wrong mm-hmm. that we need to take better care of the environment. Uh, does that interest you at all? Yeah, I think it's about, um, you know, sustainable development and regarding just the being involved in management, knowing, knowing what's happening on the land, knowing, I know that, um, for us, when the, um, there's a flower that, um, um, blooms when the spring are returning. And so you have the connection of, of our way of life to the, you know, resources. And without fish, you know, it'll, it'd be like, um, it, it fully change our culture, way of life. Yeah. And, and so, um, so we need to ensure that, um, we have the fishery for our next generations and, um, um, have, um, the, the ability to, to have a greater say. Um, I think, um, you know, poaching is a big issue. So we need to, to, you know, help ensure there's no poaching. When I say poaching, you know, um, so there's some, you know, wasted fish down by Surrey that, was just dumped, um, which is just you know, you know wasted, and so we just need to deal with these um, 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 issues that uh, confront the fishery. At the same time, we need to have a redress for the um, the impacts on our fishery from historic um, um, activities, namely the construction of the railway. So we know that um, when the uh, CN railway was built. In 1913-1914, that there was two major slides that impacted our fishery to this day, and so um, so although our people um, were affected by um, by that historically, that impact still cont- uh, continues on to this day. So, so we know that in 1914, when our people had no access to the fishery, they had to go to the lakes to get the fish, and so they had to travel um, some distance. And so, um, so right now there's no uh, process to address the um, Hell's Gate legacy, the Hell's Gate slide. Wow. As well, you are from a community, near a community that was detrimentally impacted by not only fires, but the atmospheric river, I'm, my understanding is mudslides. Uh, from that, I'm hearing that there's some positive development. Obviously, it's a, it's a tragedy, but making more fire-resistant homes. Can you speak at all to the development that's going on in Lytton right now? Um, yes. Um, so I've been involved behind the scenes. Uh, I've provided uh, my um, legal work to my First Nation on a volunteer basis. It helped with the um, contracts for all the, a lot of the things that are happening you know, on the ground for the temporary housing that um, was just... Um, in place there, um, there was 42 modelers um, installed, and so I helped behind the scenes on 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 that work. Um, things are are, um, are quite slow for my liking, I guess. Um, and just, I guess it's this process you, you want to go fast because you have um, you know members living in motels, and so you try to you know 
provide your assistance, your help, um, but things have just been slow for whatever you know reason. Um, and um, it's going to be an ongoing process. Um, my um, wife's community, uh, Telegraph Creek, was also um, um, affected by wildfire in the year um, uh, 2018. And they also lost quite a few homes. So I know it's, it's a multi-year process to have homes rebuilt and um, for the community to um, return um and so it just takes time. Um, but nonetheless, um, there are some things that need to be probably addressed to address the um, ongoing impacts. And so, um, you know, one is um, the, um, I think it's having a, a when we talk about having a circle, having a, a um, you know, team, the recovery team, more of a bigger circle so that everybody knows what's happening. So I think you have a lot of teams working in silos between the the province, the uh, village of Lytton, the First Nations, the tribal council. You have different teams um, working by themselves, and there needs to be some sort of more um, unified action to work more as one. Um, and so um, – I work um, with a my um, we have a language society called Pia Week, which means working as one, and working uh, based on that philosophy. So right now we're not working as one. So although, although we have a, a common goal, um, there needs to be a better process to to try to um, you know break down the barriers to work as one big team to um, have you know members. Return because so although we have um, 42 modulars built, there's still um, a need for more housing and um, to build the infrastructure. Because we lost lost a, a band band hall, um, we lost the um, Rosie Sky building, which was a cultural building. Um, we lost um, other community buildings. Um, and then you have all the services that were lost, you know, downtown Lytton, the post office, RCP, the hospital, or health center. Um, and so, um, yeah, so just, um, it's going to be an ongoing work. Um, the, the biggest issue, uh, or one issue for, for the community is that we have a, a travel council that has received monies from the, the mine. And the tribal council is not using those funds, to my knowledge, for the recovery. They're using the funds for a different project, um, and everything is not being disclosed to the members. So it's not a very good situation where you have um, a lack of um, community input regarding the use of those um, funds from the mine. For the um, and so it's a it's an ongoing issue. Interesting. Where for you does the the court of public opinion come in? Uh, I've heard that things have taken far longer in Lytton than is fair, is just after everything they've been through. Not just one natural disaster, but two. How? When does that become appropriate? We see it with Wet'suwin'en. They post a lot. There are various people involved. Certain communities really leverage it. I don't know always to their benefit um, whether or not the court of public opinion stays with you or after a certain time you kind of lose the public 
support. How how do you think about that? Because it does seem like First Nation communities have become fairly adept at using the court of public opinion to try and raise awareness of an issue. But it's a bullet in the chamber that you want to use carefully, thoughtfully. And so I'm just interested in your thoughts on that. Right. Um, so I think it's about, um, you know, the, the real issues. And um, I think it's, you know, dealing with, you know, capacity issues and trying to work with the various bureaucracies, trying to break down the, the barriers. Um, and so, you know, with the um, with these events, you know, the fire, fire the atmospheric river event, um, and just events linked to um, you know global warming, you know the, the fires that destroyed some more um, houses this past summer. So you have ongoing climate change issues, um, which are very serious. Um, and um, you know, um, for me, as long as you have uh, people who need support, you need to support those those uh, members. And so um, every day that a member's in the motel, you need to support those members. So. Um, some people may be calling it politics, but it's just regarding um, trying to take the the best steps using best practices to to support the community. And the the difficulty here is that um, um, you probably need to have a review process to see you know what's happened, how can we make things you know better, um, improve the processes because you're doing you know people's uh, lives here. Yeah, I just wonder if it weren't Lytton, if it were in Vancouver, it would be getting press coverage daily, even if people weren't seeking it out, and it would be at the front of people's minds. If it was in Victoria, the legislators would see that every day and think about it and have it at the front of their mind. My concern is that, again, going back to postal codes, that because it isn't in everybody's face all the time because it's a more rural community. They don't get the public attention. And so there's less scrutiny on going up to John Horgan or David Eby and being like, where are you at with Lytton First Nation? What are you doing for Lytton First? It's not constantly being bombarded in their face. So it maybe falls slowly over time from the priority list. Like we heard the same from farmers who were uh, impacted by the atmospheric river and, and the events there is that they just didn't feel prioritized the way that when things happened in the Valley, it felt like things happened quite a bit quicker. Yeah. I think it's, it's, uh, um, you know, it's difficult because of um, the, uh, the area is not, um, you know, in the public eye as, as much anymore. Um, but you have the um, ongoing impacts. You know, it's affected my family, um, so so I know what you know happened with my aunts and uncles and um, you know cousins and, and so on. And and so you try to support, um, and so it just um, it's just going to take time. Um, and I think that um, the issue um, is it's a bigger issue because it's dealing with climate change, which is you know here now it's it's very, it's very apparent. And there's probably a broader risk for other communities down the road um, regarding, you know, what are the uh, standards for house building, um, the difficulties for getting, you know, house insurance, and um, just being aware that you may need to be evacuated um, because of a fire. Um, And so it's just, um, um, so I think that um, it's in the attention of the public, but trying to have an ongoing process to address it and it's going to require a lot of funding as well at the same time 
When did you decide you wanted to become uh, an adjunct professor? When did you decide you wanted to start taking everything you've learned over the years and start sharing it with others? Um, I think that um, following you know, law school and you know, getting into practice, um, I had a um, teaching opportunity with the uh, used to be called the um, um, Institute of Indigenous Government, um, the IIG. Um, so I became a um, instructor um, teaching about um, self-government, Aboriginal rights, and so on, and then. Um, I was um, asked to teach a uh, self-government class at the law school. And then um, one of the teachers who first taught the um, uh, Indigenous Economic Indigenous Development class, um, 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 that teacher um, taught, I think, for one semester. And then after that, um, um, they um, asked me to teach it. And so I... I Harness that opportunity, and that was back. I first started teaching at law school back in the year uh, 2021, and um, so it's a you know honor to be able to teach to students and share your knowledge and to to give back. And um, love it's based upon my experience as a lawyer working for the communities. And um, yeah, so it's just um, it's sort of um, it's rewarding and um, takes a bit of time. Um, and um, but yeah, it's challenging because you got to be on top of everything every semester. What What do you hope students take away from the course? What tools do you hope that they remember? Obviously, uh, the course covers a wide variety of topics. But if you can instill certain things, what stands out to you as the key kind of tools that will will help them uh, in their in their career? Is it um, for the students to know that um, there's this potential for um, any nation, any community to develop their resources, develop their territory for the betterment of the um, of their community, and that there's different tools, there's different options, different choices. There's there's various um, legal means to get there, um, and um, there's. Um, you know, options available, and it's also about trying to to um, um, provide information regarding the, the possibilities. You literally wrote the book on First Nations economic development. I'm wondering if you could tell us how your book came about uh, and what the process was to put this together. Um, yeah, so it's a bit of a process in that um, over the years um, – uh, Cynthia and myself have presented to different conferences, uh, gatherings over the years, and because I've taught on the matter for, for years as well, um, every year I was trying to pull together materials for the class, and I thought it'd be useful to have one book to um, for, for the students so, so that they can access the information in one place, and um, so this is basically it's you know represents uh, insight into um, our practice. Um, it didn't include all of our trade secret, secrets, so <laughs> um, we um, so I had um, my associates help out as well, and and so it's being updated uh, this year. So we actually have a second volume coming out in January, and just to provide um, you know basic information to law students. And um, I know that from feedback from law students, they've been very um, pleased with the um, book. Some say that they use it all the time in, in their work, and I know that. Uh, many of my past students have went on to um, become lawyers, and I know that 
um, the um, class has helped inform them in their um, legal profession, and so that's encouraging. And and um, for me, it's just about it's um, if they can um, you know gain this information, this um, insight into how uh, into how to develop um, First Nations and Métis communities, then it'll help um, the you know greater good. And um, so um, yeah, so just it's just really a um, a overview regarding how to provide a, a framework to develop a community nation uh, based upon their average rights and title, um, based upon um, their reserve lands, based upon the resources in their area, and um, dealing with the implementation of UNDRIP, you know, implementation of um, FPIC, and you know uh, how to negotiate uh, impact benefit agreements. And um, how to implement um, IBAs, dealing with uh, corporate structuring, tax issues, um, also dealing with you know, treaty rights, and um, dealing with certain case studies involving you know um, you know gaming and casinos, and successful First Nations interesting and, and Métis groups. Can you share kind of the the rubric of the book, how the chapters go? How did that kind of uh, come about? Did they come to you and say, hey, we want you to do a book? Did you come to them and say, hey, I've got a book idea? So I approached um, LexisNexis with the concept um, back, I think, around 2016, and they said yes. Um, they, um, they were fully supportive. And so um, it is a, a couple-month exercise to roll everything into uh, the chapters. Um, I leaned on my associates as well and my um, assistants, and um, we pulled it together. And um, it, it uh, happened real quick. Um, and um, it's basically, you know, based upon um, my um, classes are based upon you know PowerPoint presentations. So it's rolling in the presentations into the chapter format, based upon a case law, um, um, legislation, uh, policy, um, best practices experiences of working with different First Nations and Métis groups across Canada and um, provides a, a, um, um, a glimmer into the, the, into the potential. Interesting. What do you hope people take away from what you've experienced over your years of service working with First Nations communities, uh, with your deep understanding of uh, the development of various communities, what do you hope uh, listeners might be able to take away from this? That there's a, a potential to utilize the um, assets and the will of the community to advance their trust to really put forward the best footing for recognition of their rights, for the accommodation of their rights, to have their rights um, honored through um, 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 successive agreements with um, with the crown, with with industry, and to provide um, opportunity for for membership, and the opportunity might be you know a training, education, um, jobs, contracting, and and um, so it's regarding how to um, harness um, you know possible benefits through um, legal instruments, legal tools. Darwin, this has been an absolute pleasure. I think what you're doing behind the scenes, the impact you have with your book, uh, being able to take a course with you, uh, it completely changed my 
philosophy, my outlook on on the best way to support communities in their development and addressing, again, some of those issues that so many people know about. This seems like a tangible way forward for so many people. So I highly recommend people go grab the book. If you're indigenous, uh, it is a fantastic read. I found it so accessible. Uh, the language wasn't intimidating. Uh, and it gives really tangible, logical ways forward for a community to take those steps to get their, their members out of those circumstances to help make sure they have all the resources they need to succeed uh, and so they have the right philosophy the right ethos to kind of start to make those steps possible yeah, thank you i really hope that we are able to do this again in the future because i think there's so much you can people can learn from you uh do you have a way people can connect with you if they have more questions if they want to connect further um we do have a firm website uh, chlaw.ca and um i'm sort of um more quiet off of social media. So I do have a Facebook account, but I don't, I'm not too active. I don't have a Twitter. I don't have Instagram. <laughs> so I'm sort of, um, I want to say off the grid, but I, I try to keep um, on a download just because we do a lot of work for different nations. Um, we try to keep all of the political spotlight. <laughs> and, and um, but um, yeah, so if um, I'll just say that if you want to, connect with me just you know um you'll find me so <laughs> we'll cross paths at some point sounds good yes i think if they want to connect with you they can probably go through their web your website um and get your email address and information like that yes. thank you so much for being willing to come on this was an absolute pleasure okay good show how much